This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. Inter Milan into the Champions League final for the first time since 2010. Thoroughly deserved and if we're honest, they won it in the first 11 minutes of the first leg. And of the two Milan sides, they have the best chance of giving Manchester City or Real Madrid a game in June. As for Milan, they had to score first. They had two chances to do it and that might have changed things, but not even the return of Rafael Leao really made a difference. Also today, commiserations Baz, congratulations Faker Others. She'll join us for Luton Corner from the National League in 2014 to one game away from the top flight. Uh, we'll also ask if Leicester are finished after being comfortably beaten by Liverpool on Monday night. Klopp's men could still make the top four. We'll review Howard Webb's tour of the TV studios. Take your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Barry Glendening, welcome. Hello. At last, Siverton, hello. Good morning, Max. Hello, Nikki Bandini. Morning. Uh, Alan says, will the mics be turned on? Yes, uh, quite a lot of correspondence about Jordan Jarrett Bryan's mic being turned off. Two mics being turned off, so he couldn't talk about Aston Villa. We'll get to that. But let's start at the San Siro. Uh, into one, AC Milan nil. That uh, 72nd minute winner from Lautaro Martinez means they beat Milan 3-0 on aggregate. They're in the Champions League final. Uh, you're back in Milan, Nicky. Um, how was it? Yeah, it was, it was another sort of brilliant, I suppose, event, if you want to put it that way. It was a brilliant sort of atmosphere and, and match to be at. The game itself was, I guess, lots of people saw it. It wasn't a particularly thrilling match of football. I, I looked up at a certain point just just before Lautaro scored, actually, I just glanced up at the scoreboard and, and I noticed that they sort of had this rotating display of the stats. It just happened to stay at that moment, saves, and it was one all on saves. And you thought it's one all on saves, it's nil nil on the match. That kind of tells you exactly what we've been watching. But I mean, what do you, um, what can you demand of Inter? They were 2 0 up from the first leg. They, I thought they actually did sort of try to play a slightly more, um, they did try to create some opportunities in the first half and, they risked something because there was that one Diaz chance where they um where Diaz gets it on his wrong foot and really should score. Um and I think after that in the second half particularly, they just said, Well, we don't need to risk anything. We can we can shut up here and and, and dare Milan to beat beat us. And you know, I I don't think it was ever reasonable to expect that Rafael Leal could transform this on his own. Obviously people hoped he could. But the problem was exactly the same for Milan as it was in the first leg. They haven't got, and it's been a, a problem more more than once this season, if an opposing team doesn't create the space for them by coming onto them, they haven't really got great ways of getting in behind you other than the individual skill of Leao or, or Teo Hernandez. Um, bearing in mind that Teo Hernandez is a wing-back, by the way. Um, not even a wing-back, I mean, playing a, a back four, but acting as a wing-back, really. The other sort of great sub um, plot to this game, which I, I have been talking about a bit in the last, I think I was talking about it with you last night on Stan, is just that Francesco Acerbi has now, in four games in a row this season, completely shut down Olivier Giroud, which is your other option for scoring a goal, right? Like you go to Olivier Giroud, the guy who who won you the derby last season that transformed the the whole title race, going from 1-0 down to 2-1 up against um, against Inter just changes that whole season, changes the story. It means that Milan are champions, not Inter. I think in, in, it's really that big of a difference. And since yeah, since Acerbi became starter for, for for Inter this season, they haven't conceded a single goal in four derbies, and a big part of that is because he absolutely has had Giroud in his pocket. It's fair to say, Lars, isn't it? Inter have got better players and more depth, right? Of the of the teams. In that semi-final, we probably wanted... I mean, a lot of people in the quarter-final draw thought, oh, it'd be nice if Napoli got through and see how they could get through. But once we got to this semi-final, you needed Inter to get through to the final to make the final a real game. Is that unfair on AC Milan or is that the right review of this? Probably. I guess I, I, I kind of thought because they got past Napoli and the way they defended in that tie maybe they could sit back and do a similar job on whoever of the finalists they they end up facing AC Milan. But there was really no doubt over the two legs that they just didn't have the, the tools to, to get past Inter, especially when Inter, when, as, as you so eloquently said in the intro, Max, especially when Inter went uh, ahead early in the first leg. It just never felt... Uh, 
again, <laughs> my eyes were just constantly drawn to the Luton game. More about that later, because <laughs> it just it, it it never felt like it was going to happen, and that that kind of surprised me a little bit. Because as much as you go through the two teams one by one individually, yeah, maybe there is a bit more quality in the Inter, but there's not that much more quality, you know. So I I, I was kind of surprised that Milan weren't able to to do it. But of course, Nicky is just. Uh, gone through sort of tactical reasons why maybe someone like Ben Asser being away was extra hurtful in a game like this where you needed to move the ball around with a bit more quality than than they were able to do. I think I disagree with Lars. I think there is a really big sort of gap in quality and maybe not in the quality of the first 11s but I think that Ben Asser thing is, is hugely the point. Moving Ben Asser up into that number 10 role was one of the sort of transformative moments for the better in Milan season. That was the key move to them beating Napoli not just sort of twice in the cup but also thumping them in the league was was having him there and as soon as Ben Asser goes out in that first leg bearing in mind that you were already missing Leao as well um, there's a big drop off in, in what you have whereas in this game Mkhitaryan goes off injured just for half time for, for Inter and oh hey it's Marcelo Brozovic coming off the bench like it's not you're not talking about some, some chumps Brozovic is a medalist in both the last two World Cups was the key figure in this inter midfield until injury this season sort of thrust Chalanoglu into that that central regista role and, and, and changed the team a bit. So I, I do think depth, maybe more than absolute sort of starting 11, depth is a real difference between these two teams. I think depth is a real reason why Inter are doing so well at the back end of this season because you've got it in midfield with as I said, Brozovic can be not a starter. You've got it up front when Lukaku can score five goals and get three assists in his last four league games and still be an impact sub here because you've got Dzeko who you want to start and Dzeko I thought had a really good game and in defence bearing in mind that Skriniar has been out for a while and used to be sort of considered as an absolutely a player you couldn't do without Skriniar's out and De Vrij is no longer starting because you've got Acerbi there doing such a good job they really have got alternatives all the way through the team and being blunt about it, they can't afford it. They're going to have to continue to cut back this wage bill. Their wage bill is about 60% bigger than Milan. So there's a reason why they have greater squad depth. Um, but nevertheless, I do think that squad depth has made a big difference. And it makes a difference as well when you look at a player like Dzeko. The fact that he's performing this well late in the season is because he doesn't have to start every game. Yeah, no, I, I think you are probably, well, not not just probably, you are definitely right about that, Nikki. And it's possible that I'm sort of blinded by that sort of left flank of Fernandes and Lau, and that, that looks great on paper. And, you know, old man Giroud is still... I guess the reality is still that AC Milan, you're in a Champions League semi-final with, like, Krunic and Junior Macias and, and Brahim Diaz. And there's a lot of guys there who, you know, if you look at your lining lineup and that's what you're seeing, then getting to the Champions League final is a, is a big ask. So, yeah, fair point. Um, a World Cup win in a Champions League final. Not a terrible season for Lautaro Martinez, Barry. Uh, amazing reception when he was subbed. When he was subbed off, should should Manian be saving that shot? Ah, uh, I don't know. Possibly, you know. Any time a goalkeeper gets beaten at his near post, where everyone says, "Oh, he shouldn't have got beaten at his near post," but the fact of the matter is, it was, you know, a rasper of a shot. Possibly should have kept it out. Ultimately, didn't really make any difference. I thought Inter were comfortable throughout, kept Liao on a pretty tight rein, looked just composed on the ball or and without the ball. I mean, Magnin's he's a fine keeper. I have no idea whether he should have kept it out or not, but ultimately it's academic. Yeah, he made one brilliant save in the first half. I guess the question, Nicky, is do you give Inter chance in the final? We've talked about Aterbi and how well he kept out Giroud. Giroud is not carrying Benzema or Erling Haaland. Yeah, and I, and I think the same sort of thing that I said just now about how when you go through Inter's team and Milan's team, you think actually Inter should be winning this tie. I think whichever it is out of Madrid or, or Manchester City, you're going to look at those two teams going into the final and say, well, this is the team that should win this tie. They're going to be the underdogs, and that's and that's right. I, I think we can sort of say they're going to be the underdogs and also that I don't believe they've got a zero chance of winning the final. I think that's I think that's going too far with it. And I think that, I do think there's been a bit of underestimation of the quality in this Inter team. And I think it's Napoli are without question the best team in Italy this season, but Inter are the best team in Italy right now, in my opinion. I might have said that last week, but I, I do think it. They're the team playing the best football. And when you go through it, 
there are some parts of the team that on paper look a little bit weak. I think on, on paper, you look at the defence and think it's not a particularly sort of terrifying defence. Acerbi is 35 years old. He's someone who had played 10 Champions League games before this season, but he's having a great season. Uh, Matteo Damian, again, you know, he's 33 and he's had a, he's had his moments, but he's not sort of one of the, he's, you're not putting him in a, in a bracket with your Bonucci's and Kellini's, are you, at the end of his career, but he's having a good season. Um, Bastoni, I think, has some some future. The midfield, I look at, and I think, well, again, it it starts to look not so good when you compare it to perhaps City or Real Madrid. But it is potentially Chalanoglu and Barella, who is, in my opinion, the best Italian midfielder of a generation, um, and um, Brozovic is your backup, Mkhitaryan, who, again, sure, discarded by the Premier League, but he's he's had some good moments in his career and the attack I think is genuinely good I think when you've got Lautaro Martinez who blows hot and cold but his his hot is very very hot when you've got Lautaro Martinez being paired with Dzeko or Lukaku both of whom can give you very different options it's not a team with nothing in it is it a team that's got an Erling Haaland no is it a team that's got a Benzema no I mean I was sort of amusing myself with the fact that um, Federico Di Marco has got the joint most assists in the Champions League this season with five, which is a good number, by the way. And the player who's alongside him at joint most is Vinicius Jr. And nobody is looking around and going, oh, I'll take Di Marco in my team before I'll take Vinicius Jr. No one's no one's saying that. But at the same time, Di Marco is having a really nice season under Inzaghi. And I think that if you want to sort of believe in the, the sort of the romantic part of football and, and just, uh, well, let's not look too much at the details of who's got better players... Inzaghi's got things right in cups again and again and again. And no one thought they were getting through the group stage when they got paired with Barcelona and Bayern Munich. And he was confident back then that they would. And they have. Yes, they've had a, a pretty comfortable run in terms of games to get to the, the final. But at the same time, before that Benfica game, I was looking at Benfica and their form and saying, this is not a pushover. This is a real game they've got to get through. And they they made it look easy. He He's got these calls right. He's shown they can win these games. They're going to go at it with an attitude that they can win it. Maybe they'll get walloped and and it'll all go the way it's supposed to. But I, I wouldn't give it this sort of complete certainty that some people are. And the DeMarco story is great, isn't it? You know, an Inter fan there when he was five years old. Yeah, yeah. He was at the um, the semi-final 20 years ago when they lost to Milan in 2003. What a sort of thing to come and, and turn it around. And at the end of the game, he grabbed a microphone and was leading the fans in sort of chance of we're all off to Istanbul and Kinon Salta Rossonero which is if you're not jumping you're a Rossonero you're a Milan fan I, I think that's a, a lovely story but there are so many little stories within the story here I mean Chalanoglu of course left um, Milan to join Inter so he could win the league then immediately didn't win the league and Milan won the league instead so this was sort of the revenge um, moment for him um, obviously we've, we've talked about Acerbi but Di Marco and his history with the club I think I think there's so many little stories like that within the bigger story of Inter. It's, it's been a a really sort of fascinating season. And it's worth saying again with um, Inzaghi, the beginning of April, there were newspaper reports out there saying if he loses to Benfica, that's it, he's out. Like he's going to lose his job. Like that's how sort of fine the lines were. And even Acerbi before this tie, I, I really liked the way he sort of was just totally blunt about it. He said, if we lose this tie, it's been a shit season. And and that's how they were viewing it. That's how they were framing it. And instead of being a shit season, now they're going to a Champions League final. They're going to the Coppa Italia final. They'd already won the Supercoppa. Suddenly it looks like it's it's quite a good season, actually, as long as they can get the top four as well, which at this point looks more likely than not. AC Milan had gone into this side after losing to Spezia, which is a sort of pretty dramatic defeat for them. And after the game, they were summoned to the uh, uh, the ultras and one ultra, head ultra, I presume, or the, the voice of the ultras, got to sort of yell at them for a, a minute or two. And they all had to stand stony-faced, manager, players, everyone. I really liked Simon Kier's face. He's, you could just see there's a sort of little look in his eye going, what on earth is happening here? But they had to all... <laughs> this would not happen in Denmark. Yeah, they had to all sort of like really politely listen and then everybody sort of all clapped and, and then they ran off. And I was learning yesterday, Nikki, and you can help me on this, that, that apparently in, fed, that there is, in federal law, there is a law which states that Italian footballers can't be publicly humiliated because of the, of the influence of the ultras. But just give us a bit of background to that because it's an astonishing bit of footage. Yeah, when we talk about federal law here, I think you're referring to 
it's the the federal is the Italian Football Federation has its sort of laws. It's, it's oh it's right, oh right. It's not the law of the land. Okay, right. Okay, it makes a bit more sense. <laughs> uh, this is after the Spezia game, not after the game last night. In fact, after the game last night. So first of all, it's worth saying this part of it, which is that every game Milan's players go under the quarterfinal. That's totally just like a standard thing. Win or lose, go and say thank you to the fans. That's that's part of the process. They did it last night, and I noticed that the I, I was paying attention, and the Milan fans were were giving them a warm reception despite losing. They weren't sort of um, jeering them and whistling them. And the, the 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 messaging that came out after this um, scene, after La Spezia game, the game in, against Spezia was um, uh, that this was a positive conversation, that we were in, encouraging them, that we were telling them we were behind them, we're saying, you know, we just want you to see you give as much, give as much as we give you guys and we'll be happy, which is always the message from Ultras. It's always just, we want to see as much effort as, as we're putting in, basically. And Pioli said that and uh, players said that. They all said, no, no, this is a message of encouragement. A day later, you had a few hundred, maybe nearly a thousand Milan fans showed up at the training ground and sang songs for them. So there was the tone officially and 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 I have no reason to, to doubt it was an encouraging conversation. But it's still, even despite that, um, a particular power dynamic at play that I think not everyone is comfortable with. I know, I know not everyone is comfortable with. I, I won't say I think because I've spoken to people and, and that goes for people within the club, that goes for people outside the club, that goes for people watching, that it's it's a very sort of atypical power dynamic for a self-appointed leader of the fan base. That isn't someone who's sort of democratically elected to speak for all fans. It's someone who represents an ultra group who has sort of positioned themselves there through the machinations of, of what happens on the court of our, which is a whole separate conversation to go into, um, gets to sort of lecture you. And yes, in this case, they were saying something apparently encouraging, but is that still okay? And I've heard people say they think it is a good thing because they say, you know, look, there's so much disconnect now with footballers. Fans don't have this rapport. They don't get to sort of have their feelings heard. And it's it's important that there's still that connection between fans and players. And, and I know some people think that, but I can say definitely that there is another side to it which is that there are some people including within the club who find it a very uncomfortable dynamic what happens in the curve is definitely a conversation we should have at some point because totally so many questions so fascinating as to who becomes the spokesperson what if he doesn't deliver a good enough yelling at Olivier Giroud's face what happens then Um, anyway uh, Man City Real Madrid uh, tonight Pep said ahead of this game Barry I've been here many times Um, My legacy is exceptional already. I have told the players to enjoy the moment. We are incredibly lucky to be here. I mean, obviously your legacy is is also exceptional, Barry. Um, (laughs) There is another quote from Pep where he says, I have an idea to do something differently just to be more fluid in attack. Could this be the over the overthink, Baz? Uh, well, I suppose we'll find out soon enough. I'd be interested to see what his idea is, what, what... Uh, fiddling and meddling he's going to do um, and obviously if it doesn't work out he will be pilloried for it and if it does he'll be lauded as a genius and his legacy will be even more exceptional than it already is. It feels to me Lars that City will surely play the same side. If Camavinga's out maybe they'd play Mahrez instead of Bernardo up against Nacho. Like like the, the Real Madrid questions are bigger. Camavinga might be out. Militao is Back from suspension, do you play him or do you stick with Rudiger, who was brilliant against Haaland? Yeah, and, and when Pep says, I've been here many times, is he referring to the semi-final? Because I feel that is true. And I, I feel the fact that the, the ratio of semi-finals to, to eventual finals is... is uh, or is that correct? Has he gone out earlier? I think the point is, in this tournament, that's where his legacy is a little bit more hazy. You know, I, I always think ju- judging someone on winning the Champions League is kind of foolish to begin with but it is true that Guardiola has spent many many seasons in charge of what has looked like the best team in Europe and and, and maybe you feel like at some point along the way they should have there should have been more Champions League titles somehow uh, given just how good his teams have been so so I, I guess that there is a slight element of of, of doubt and suspicion there and he, he's made some calls in this tournaments that have been goofy but it just seems like they've struck on something that really works now and he's just let that run uh, and uh, I, I'm weirdly confident I mean keenly aware that quite a few people will be listening to this pod after the game has, has been played I am very confident on Man City's behalf going into this Who do Inter want Nicky? I mean Man City on form are sort of irrepressible Real Madrid 
always win the Champions League. It's not a nice choice. I spoke to a few different Inter fans last night and in the last couple of days about it and literally none of them would like either of them. So. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've heard some people say they'd, a boss someone was saying to me last night, they'd rather it was Manchester City just because in some sense that would feel less... I don't know that they were happy with the idea of losing to Manchester City than they were with the idea of losing to Real Madrid, perhaps because City haven't won it before. But no, I, I don't think there's there's an obvious choice. Selfishly, I would love it to be Madrid just because I think that they sort of continues this Milan-Inter dynamic because, of course, Ancelotti is the great cup winner at, at, at Milan and, and Inzaghi is establishing himself as this great cup winner at Inter. I think it's a fun story, but no, they're, they're going to be underdogs, whichever one it is, without question. Uh, all right, that'll do for part one. Part two will begin with um, Sunderland's defeat, I'm afraid, Barry, at the hands of Luton Town in the playoff semi-final. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, right, let's talk about the playoffs last night. Uh, Luton 2, Sunderland 0, Luton win 3-2 on aggregate. Bart says, what a story, Max, if... Uh, it would be if Luton make it to the Prem. They were playing in the conference as recently as 2013-14. And now they're one game away from welcoming the likes of Pep to Kenilworth Road. I hope Barry is OK. Uh, Barry, are you OK? I'm absolutely fine, thank you. Uh, slightly disappointed, but, you know, it's all right. Uh, it is Luton Corner, so we have to have Faye Carruthers. Hey, Faye. Hey, how you doing? Really good. Um, how was it? It was absolutely incredible. The atmosphere at Kenworth Road was something really special. I was there for the Watford game earlier in the season, which was the loudest I'd heard it in a long time. But this took it up a, another notch and we needed that because at the Stadium of Light, I did the round trip up to Sunderland and back in a day on Saturday. And uh, it was... You know, quite depressing on the way back because we hadn't turned up in the in the second half. But part of that was to do with how loud it was at the Stadium of Light. It felt like a cauldron. And we knew that we had to try and replicate that last night, which is exactly what we did. And, and I don't think Sunderland kind of caught up with it. And we just we just turned it on. It was just the best atmosphere, the best. I mean, not the prettiest game, obviously. <laughs> we, we were quite gritty. Um, and I know it hurts you. I know it hurts you, Max. Um, probably more than it hurts Barry. <laughs> I'm all right. I know I don't mind. I, no, I don't really mind, actually. Like, it's a sort of fake rivalry. If it was Peterborough, I would be really struggling at this stage. But I don't mind Luton getting into the Premier League. You know, I, I think it would be... It's exciting to have someone a bit different, you know. Um, but talk us through the game. Because it looked to me... right. I, mean, I, I was sort of focused on on the, the Milan derby. But, it, I mean, it did look to me like a sort of really good under-18 team coming up against a wizened team of old brutes, which is slightly unfair on Luton. But that's that's kind of what it... We're just dicking... You know, just smacking it into the box. Massive players you know, trying to score from set pieces all the time. Am I being unfair? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> fine. Because <laughs> we've got some proper players in our team, you know, Carlton Morris, 20 goals for the season, but actually it's our defenders that that really came to the fore. We were, you know, we, we struggled against um, Ahmed Jarlow in the, in the, the first leg. He's, an unbelievable player and was just running at us constantly. So we're trying to smother him out and we knew that we had the height advantage and that was going to play into, into our hands. We, we knew what they threw at us in the second, in the first uh, leg at the stadium of light, but we just had more than them this time. And we were pressing our pressing was, was, absolutely brilliant um we grew into the game as well scored in pretty much the same minute as we did in the first leg uh with Gay Bosho obviously from a corner and the second goal from from Tom Lockyer was recycled from a corner as well we had about four shots cleared off the line and I know that they had a a penalty shout um and it looked as if the ball could have hit the arm of Amari Bell but you know I didn't see it so, <laughs> didn't, all right, all right, it didn't happen <laughs> <laughs> can you just tell me the um, like when the final whistle blows you know I, I can't believe this is the first playoff game Luton have ever won right that's an amazing stat isn't it just when that final whistle blows <laughs> try and describe that moment so I was with my nephew and my family in um, my cousin had got a, there's a big box at the end you know the exec boxes that people take the mickey out oh, of which won't be there if we make the Premier League um, no prawn sandwiches at uh, at Kenworth Road, as I've been accused of. But it just means that we can all sit and watch the game together rather than be dotted all around the, 
the stadium with season tickets and stuff. So um, I, that my nephew doesn't stop the whole game. He literally is like running commentary from from first to last whistle, and he just let out this enormous roar. And I think it was relief more than anything because as you you know we've t- we've talked about this a lot the the roller roller coaster of emotions as a as a football fan, but as a Luton fan in particular are just absolutely insane. And you know the minute that. Cody Drame missed that absolute sitter. Um, <laughs> we were all just like, there's still a minute and a half left of added time. You just know what's going to happen. It's written. Um, and obviously it, it, it didn't pass that way. So I think it was a mixture of relief. a mixture, And I wouldn't say it was disbelief because I always believed we'd get there, if I'm honest. And I feel really strange saying that because of our history in the playoffs and... Um, you know, everything about Luton as a club. But at the same time, this season feels really different and it feels, this this group of players feel really different. You know, I, sp- I spoke to Gary Sweet, our CEO, before the before the game and he said all the players were really relaxed and, and chilled and they knew what they had to do. Um, we needed to make Kenilworth Road loud, which is exactly what we did. The players turned up. Um, so it was a mixture of, of emotions. But I tell you what, my cousin's little boy, Jensen, um, got upset at, at the full-time whistle and was very emotional that we were going to Wembley and I caught sight of him and then that set me off and I was like I, I, I've been really you know jumping around like a lunatic before that but then I kind of grasped the magnitude of it because I, I remember a few years ago when people took the mickey out of Gary Sweet for saying that that this is a club that could get to the Premier League and you know the narrative in football is always oh little old Luton etc cetera, etc cetera. but anybody who comes down to Kenilworth Road spends any time around the club and the people involved in the club will realize it's it's somewhere really really special and that's not to be laughed at because we're a game away from it which is just incredible bearing in mind where we were just a few years ago Barry how was it for you I have no complaints whatsoever. Sunderland were beaten fair and square over the two legs. Uh, like you say, they did at times resemble a, an under-18 side that had come up against these this team of gnarled veterans, but they didn't really turn up last night. Luton were better in pretty much every department. I think it was a brilliant achievement by Sunderland just to get to the playoffs and to considering the just the calamitous luck they've had with in terms of injuries and whatnot and they played two legs of a playoff semi-final with only one fit defender and only lost by a goal so yeah I've, I've absolutely no complaints at all Lars you moved this to the main telly didn't you yeah, well, I, I just thought it was a great game. Uh, I mean, and it's uh, just one of those things you never think you're going to say out loud uh, with a straight face. But there was a Milan derby in the Champions League semi-final on, uh, and I also had Luton on, and my eyes kept being drawn to the Luton game. It was a much more <laughs> fun game to watch. I, I think you, you can talk about them being direct and all this sort of stuff and set pieces. But I just thought this was a great example of how you play like that because it's not just hoofing it. You, you just, if you just hoof it, the ball will come right back. It's no good just doing that. There's a real art to being quite direct, but also just re- always fighting for the second ball, always making for sure you move the ball to an area where there are people who can fight for the second ball. Like, like Faye just said, like they don't press high like like a Bielsa team or some nonsense like that. But when they go, they they go together and they 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 they're, they do such a good job winning the ball back in good areas of the field. And it was super impressive and real intensity to everything they did. Uh, roared on by a by what sounded like an incredible atmosphere through the television. So just a really impressive performance overall from Luton. Who you know they are what they are, and they just strike me as a team who understand what their strengths are, and they play to them. Uh, and and I, I always enjoy watching that. Um, and a word on Rob Edwards, Faye. Um, uh, like, ha- how great is it that Watford sacked him and now he's got you to the playoff final? It can't be better than that, can it? Oh, my God, it can't be better than that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, I, 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 look, I'm not even going to give them airtime. What a ridiculous, ridiculous club. But thank you for being so ridiculous that you pass over an incredible young manager who has elevated the team even further than it had um, got before and harboured an amazing team spirit additionally to that, plays really good football, doesn't have an ego, so 
comes in and just tweaks little things rather than ripping up something that was already working under Nathan Jones. So, yeah, I mean, we've got Super Robbie Edwards as we sing at the top of our voices. Um, and let's not let, let's not go into the Watford chance. Who do you want, Coventry or Middlesbrough? Do you know, what? we were having this debate last night. Um, we, we, we've got a similar record against both of them. A part of me feels as if Coventry is a little bit more of an unknown under under Mark Robbins in some ways. I feel as if they've kind of had such a, you know, their backstory is really interesting as well. And um, I feel that they would bring something different. I like Middlesbrough as a club. I like Michael Carrick as a manager. Uh, I think he's excellent. Um, but we did beat them, albeit with a suspect penalty, uh, just a couple of weeks ago in the championship. So I don't know. And to be honest, I'm not, I'm not even thinking about that. I know it sounds like a really silly thing to say, but I don't care what opposition we have at Wembley. We have to turn up and we have to do our job, um, which makes me sound as if I'm auditioning for manager idol. Sound like a football manager. Yeah, really good. Which Luton have done before. It's got one game. <laughs> lads know what they're doing. You know, if we turn up, we deliver. It'll be fine. Cliche, cliche, cliche. We actually did do manager idol. Uh, Mike Newell became our manager because of that when uh, when we were oh, in, yes. in more turbulent times, shall we say. Yes. Um, so yeah. I, I I don't mind. Middlesbrough have got more recent experience, I suppose. But, you know, that neither of the styles of football, I, I think we can beat both of them. We've shown that we can beat both of them, but they're both difficult opponents as well. So here are my splinters sitting in my backside. I don't mind who we get. Yeah. Luton Cov is a Panini 87. Yeah, classic, yeah. Isn't it? That's, that, that's what I think most neutrals want. Anyway, look, Faye, we'll let you go. Thanks so much and well done. Thank you. See you later. All right, then, to Monday Night Football then. Uh, less than nil, Liverpool three. Uh, that means Liverpool are fifth, one point behind Manchester United and Newcastle having played a game more. Uh, Leicester are 19th on 30 points. They've played the same as Leeds on 31, Everton on 32, Nottingham Forest on 34. I, I guess the bigger story is, is Leicester at this stage, Barry, isn't it? Yeah, they look pretty cooked, but then we've been saying that for quite a long time. They... Even back in, you know, some weeks ago when there was nine teams in the relegation mix, we were saying they looked the most likely candidates to go down because there was no fight about them. They didn't seem to have any spirit. They didn't seem to care whether or not they went down. And things haven't picked up. Dean Smith's in charge now. He's not really made any discernible difference. Liverpool's opener... You know, Liverpool are obviously a much better team than Leicester, so it's no surprise Leicester lost. But I thinking back to when Leicester were hemorrhaging goals and they brought in Vout fast and then they started having keeping clean sheets and people were going, Oh, Vout fast, big hair, you know, he's made he's made a real difference. He's helped shore up their defence. But more and more, whenever an opposition team scores against Leicester, the camera seems to sort of cut to a <laughs> disconsolate-looking Vout Fass who's, who's just made another mistake. And he was at fault for, for the first goal. He, he lost a flight, or he misjudged the, the pace on a header back to his his uh, goalkeeper. Uh, at least I think that's what he was trying to do. And that that Liverpool's first goal came from that Um Curtis Jones scored their second as well. Shot on the turn after taking a pass from Salah. Lovely finish. And, yeah, Trent Alexander-Arnold copied the free kick scored by Sunderland at Stadium of Light on Saturday. He he took a look leaf out of Ahmed Dallow's book. Um, so, yeah, no surprise Liverpool won, but Leicester do look pretty cooked. And they could still stay up. Uh, they got Newcastle away. Difficult to see them getting anything from that. West Ham at home could win that. West Ham may not be, you know, interested in that particular game. They may have other things on their mind. Uh, so, yeah, but they're if they do stay up, they'll be very lucky. Mm. Just on Vout Fass, um, Akers says, how much of an indictment on the Premier League is it that Veghorst isn't even the worst footballer called Vout? He's flying. It's not fair, is it? Another error-strewn display from the Wish.com David Louise for Leicester. I mean, it's, it's worth remembering, and, and, I, and I'd forgotten this, that poor old Vout Fass scored two own goals in the return fixture in this game, when actually Leicester were doing really quite well in that, in that game. Sorry, Lars, I interrupted you. 
I was disappointed with Leicester, I have to say, in this game. I'm gonna I know playing Liverpool is no fun if you're already in trouble and, and they have their issues. But come on. I, I mean it's it's an evening game at home under the lights when you're fighting for your lives. And over 90 minutes, they had four shots. Like, I mean, Liverpool are good, but we've seen a lot of times this season, they're not exactly indestructible in defense. And Leicester offered so, so little here. And, and then to have Dean Smith come out afterwards and sort of harp on about the ref, I thought it was unbelievable. Like, this is this is garbage. Like, honestly, very, very bad. And, 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 and this is such a... I mean, this is such an extraordinary case of, like, it's like a reverse Luton. I mean, this is a team that is so much less than the sum of their parts, because if you go through the lineup, there's some really decent players here on paper in terms of technical quality. It sounds like I'm being mean to Luton here. That's not really the point. Looking at the names on the team sheet, this team should be so much better. And I guess maybe it comes down to the fact that quite a few of them have got one eye out the door, whether Leicester stay up or not. I think there's something crazy, like seven players are out of contract in the summer, and, and a further eight who are a contract next summer, it's like a lot of guys in that group know that they're not going to be at Leicester for much longer, and that probably isn't helpful in a relegation battle. And battle, but but they're just they're really not very good. Very very disappointing. Liverpool, uh, Nicky, are on this fantastic run, and they and they and they could get there, which sort of seems ex- when you think about some moments in the season. And I don't I don't have the stats as to how many points they were off the top four, but they they were miles away. We sort of forget that these last few games are also worth the same number of points as other games in the season. Like they were just absolutely miles off the pace. It's a trite thing to say, but go short winning seven games in a row can do, right? Like it's, and it's, it's kind of, you know, it was, it was my thought before, I mean, before Arsenal obviously lost again with the sort of Manchester City um, closing in. Yeah, you can talk about Arsenal bottling it, but it's not normal just to keep winning every game, which is what Liverpool have been doing lately as well. They've just been winning every game. And, it, and I do think this has been, such a peculiar season. I think you see it all over Europe that teams have had these sort of ups and downs that have seemed really dramatic. I mean, even to bring it back to Italy, because of course I always have to, but like the way that Napoli have faded in the second part of this season, like how much of this season has been coloured by the World Cup being when it was, by this sort of just completely bizarre, like... uh, chunk of middle season we've had some teams now dealing with the aftermath of that better than others some teams finding that actually they've got this squad depth which I think is Inter's big success um, that allows them to to do things that to keep playing at a higher level whereas other teams are, are just feeling the fatigue and Liverpool do have depth they do have interesting players like um, Jones who you think actually you know maybe taking this moment to, to show he can do more and, and might have more of a future there than than, than some had thought for him. I I think I think it's a really specific, and I was going to say a really specific dynamic to this season, but actually I think all of the last few seasons have felt like this because of course there was COVID seasons before that. It just feels like every year is is weird in its own specific way. And that's why we're getting these sort of topsy-turvy moments throughout the football season. Mm. We are at a stage now, if, if Forrest avoid the bottom three, as Paul says, all of last season's promoted teams would have avoided relegation, which I can't imagine the last time that that happened, Lars. As lastly on Liverpool, I wonder what this run of wins does to Jurgen Klopp's thinking about the summer. Because that's another sort of weird thing in this. They may not make the Champions League in the end. I think it's more likely that they don't. But you know, if we go back a, a little bit further to, to when they were bad, they had a period of being quite bad Liverpool this season. And everyone was saying, ah, burn it all down. Like the team needs to be fully reconstructed. Everything is terrible. And I and I, I suspect plans will have been made at least for, for some sort of transfer activity. But now you're having this great sprint towards the end of the season. And Jurgen Klopp seems like a guy who's quite loyal to his players and, and quite likes the guys he works with and doesn't want to solve everything with transfers. It must be very tempting for him to look at this and go, huh, team's actually pretty good. Maybe we don't need to make a ton of signings this uh, summer. So I wonder if that might have an impact on, on stuff. Yeah, interesting. Like, I, I just don't know how good Curtis Jones is. Like like Nicky mentioned him and his like second goal was brilliant. I just, I have no idea if you say that's a guy who could regularly start. I mean, obviously his regularly starting is good, but you know, like, do you suddenly need to rebuild? I think it's a really interesting point. And Jürgen Klopp has probably thought about it more than we have. Um, uh, anyway, that'll do for, uh, for part two. Part three will begin with... Uh, at Howard Webb's Tours of the TV Studios. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Yes, Howard Webb's Tours of the, the TV Studios. I don't think he did the one show, although I'd have liked 
I'd like to be dad. And Wogan. <laughs> is he on Wogan? Anyway, uh, he did, what, Monday Night Football, BT Sport. Yes, Barry? They could do with him on this morning to, to referee uh, Holly Willoughby and Philip Schofield, who apparently are going through a difficult period in their friendship. Is that so? Oh, right. oh yes. Oh, do we know why? There are a number of reasons, all of them very boring, and I don't care whether Holly Willoughby and Philip Schofield are friends or not. So okay. you're probably better off. I forgot you're <laughs> you're not across British uh, daytime no. television, Max. The zeitgeist, I'm not on it. <laughs> yes, Lars? Is this something that VAR might help with? Because that that could be, I mean, a lot of friendships, they can fall afoul because of misunderstandings and you know, who did what and said what at what time. So maybe some sort of VAR intervention could bring clarity. I don't know if VAR would help friendships, would it? Anyway, Howard Webb was on uh, Monday Night Football. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I think you can find it on Sky or on the BT website. Dale Johnson, also the head of you know ESPN's VAR, Zar, uh, has done a really good thread on it. They showed six clips from across the season. And Barry, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, it was interesting up to a point insofar as Howard explain the process his team go through when or you know his teams of match officials go through when making decisions that involve VAR gave an insight into the the communication you know we heard refs linesmen and VAR officials all interacting in real time during the game and also when referees um went to check their monitors we got to hear Oleg Santer Zinchenko constantly being wrong about oh. everything. We got we, <laughs> we we got to hear uh, fans effing and jeffing at the referees, and we got to hear the chummy nicknames they have for all of the each other. Now, and it, it was good, you know. It it that was insightful, but the big problem was we didn't get any examples of incidents where they got things completely wrong. And I presume the reason for that is because it would make whoever got the decisions wrong, whoever was responsible, look like a complete idiot. And Howard Webb presumably <laughs> doesn't want to throw. But I want to know, you know, there are a couple of particularly egregious VAR decisions that spring to mind. The time uh, Newcastle's Joe Willock was a judge to have fouled Vicente Gaeta in a match between Newcastle and Palace. Now, he hadn't fouled him. Tyreek Mitchell had pushed him into Gaita. It was obvious to everyone VAR missed it. Uh, the time a VAR official drew the, a line, an offside line from the wrong defender in a Palace game against Brighton. I mean, there was Brighton have been the victim of so many egregious VAR decisions this season. I want to see, I want to see the logic behind tell us what they were saying to each other during those and Newcastle Arsenal and Brighton have all dropped points this season they're just three that spring to mind because of ludicrously bad VAR decisions we didn't get to hear the the thinking or the the communication when those decisions were made so it was interesting up to a point I would say in their defense they did show one incident that was wrong and they admitted were wrong and they explained why it got wrong and they showed one that a lot of people at the time thought was wrong so they didn't completely swerve controversy there was the Brentford penalty against Bournemouth where uh, VAR uh, missed that Tony had committed a foul before being fouled and that that shouldn't have been a penalty and they explained why so did they they missed that and you know the 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 uh, the sort of um the handball situation in, in our Arsenal Newcastle, a lot of people didn't agree with at the time, but they showed that very clearly. I just wonder, I'm not sure what how useful it would be to sort of drag uh, Howard Webb in front of a TV and say, look, you got the decision wrong. And how we go, yep, got that one wrong. Sorry about that. Like, who wins from that? Like, what's what's the... How does that improve anything? I just think it's more useful to show how the process works. Webb is clearly on a PR drive here to tell us to explain how great VAR is and how well it works. A lot of the time, it really doesn't work. And I would like to know, I would quite, you know, if you're going to cover it, cover it all. Don't don't try and just sweep the bad bits under the rug by not addressing them. Yeah, Dale Johnson says um, on Twitter, people were expecting too much if they thought the PGMOL would go in with two feet and out the biggest errors. This should be viewed as a first step. It should be seen as the first tentative steps to this becoming a weekly feature based on the previous weekend's games. Um, but PGMOL and the Premier League probably want to test the water first. 
and see how people react to the VAR audio being shared and learn from it. I really like the audio. I agree with you. I liked hearing uh, the referee's assistant yelling, I'm delaying, I'm delaying, when he hasn't put his flag up. Going, God, he's so... I mean, they're obviously out of breath because they're running all the time. Really enjoyed Craig Pawson yelling. I, I think it was that Joe Linton was onside, but it was West Ham, Newcastle, and it had been given offside when the, re- the liner was saying delaying. And Craig Pawson was yelling to Declan Rice, but he was going, Deck, Deck. Day very much sounded like Alan Partridge and Dan, 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 which I really <laughs> enjoyed. But I think you're right, Barry. If there, the really egregious errors or the fact that there are moments where it is really subjective, right, it is open to interpretation when they're disagreeing, there just could be moments where it all, they all sound like Cammy going, how's there? I didn't see that. And, and like, <laughs> that's probably why they're really um, reluctant to do the audio live, right? Because the audio live would be great. We'd love that. And if you're, you're not allowed, you're not allowed to do the live. Oh, is that right? FIFA don't allow it. And can I just, can I just like, I also think like all of us want this information and like, I'd like it. I'd like to be able to see these decisions and understand how they're made better. I think that's all things that like as journalists and also as fans watching the game, you want it. But there is another side to this, which is like the scrutiny of having someone doing your job. And of course, like you're a professional referee, you're doing your job in front of people. That's part of the job. I'm not sure they're trying to hide from that. But still, like imagine having like your specific duties being constantly monitored by a camera in your face. It's it's not going to help you do your job well. Not not at all. I think you'd make you completely agree. And I also think... I mean, managers who want this. Maybe we also release all the audio from the match day experience of the manager, so we can hear the exact thinking behind every single tactical <laughs> mistake they make. This is, needs to be. They need to be held into account. We also need to interview the players after the game to make sure what they were thinking in every single missed pass they played during the game. Every striker who missed a the chance, they have to explain themselves. I mean, if we're going to put every referee under this sort of scrutiny for every single game, and that's what we're going to demand, surely the same should be demanded of the players and managers. I mean, this constant scrutiny referees and the decisions they make are subjected to that's why we're here now that's why VAR is here you know more scrutiny and more public accountability is not going to improve the situation it is going to make it worse yeah but it would be fun to listen to that's you know sort of the the end game for me (laughs) it's just I agree I want to hear more nicknames I want to hear Alexander Zinchenko moaning constantly just leave me alone on the rep to say oh please just give me a minute just give me just one minute. It's like having a little puppy. Yes, Nikki. The NFL does this stuff so well. Like the mic'd up sort of games where you get like all everyone on the sideline has a has a mic on them. And of course, like in the NFL, like it's a game that lends itself more to having that because even when they're not doing it for telly, you know, the quarterback has a mic to his coach. That's so normal. You can't do that as well in football. But would I sign up to have a full Premier League game where I can hear what every player says to each other through the whole game. Yes, of course I would. That'd be great. Whether or not the players would like that as a long-term way of existing, I suspect they might not. Yes, I'd love the. I'd love to hear Roy Hodgson and Ray Lewington with their hands over their mouths. What are they saying? Going, who should we? Who should we hook off at half time? You know, do you reckon Will Hughes has got thirty in him? I don't know. Like I'd, that, that stuff would be great wouldn't it? Anyway, um, we'll see what happens with that one. Uh, Jamie Jackson writing in The Guardian about the Manchester United takeover. Sheikh Justin bin Hamad Altani has made a dramatic fourth bid for Manchester United with an improved offer of no more than £5.5 billion. Oh, when you're doing £5.5 billion, no more. I feel like more. It's quite a lot, really, isn't it? Um, which includes the clearance of the £1 billion debt and a fund solely for the club and surrounding community. Uh, more than two weeks have passed since uh, him and Sir Jim Ratcliffe each submitted what supposedly were meant to be final bids. Um, the Qatari banker's offer was close to $5 billion for 100%, while Ratcliffe was thought to be for a stake of a little over 50%, leaving Avram and Joel Glazer, two of the siblings that collectively own a majority share, with a 20% stake. As soon as people start talking about percentages and amounts, I just think it's Dragon's Den. But anyway, I, who knows? Like, it sort of feels like bidding will just carry on going until a, a deal is done. Bidding will continue until morale improves. Yeah. That's the saying goes. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's just a Sheikh Shazim seems to be a very rich banker. Mm. Mm. It's just an ordinary bank clerk, isn't he? He's just want to cash in number yep. six, please. Uh, there you are. Yeah. Can I cash in this? I've won 50 pounds on the premium bond. Can I cash this in, please? Uh, anyway, uh, question. Bielsa at Uruguay. Thoughts, feelings, emotions. Lars. Oh, excitement! Great excitement! I, I, I think. I think the combination. Um, it seems to be at a good time, just on a surface level, because there is a bit of a sort of generational handover shift happening there with some of the older guys. Um, 
being a bit old and, and some younger people coming through and having Bielsa to kind of mold that group forward. If you combine sort of Bielsa's view of football with the sort of, uh, you know, we don't, don't want to stereotype too much, but it seems a lot of the Uruguayan players are quite angry and energetic and sort of, they like flying into things. That, that, is, that is part of their footballing culture. And it does, you can imagine that if you put those two together, if you can make it work, you can really weaponize them. That could be a lot of fun. Yeah, and the uh, announcement on Twitter was good. It was just the you know the eyes looking one way emoji and a picture of a bucket um, uh, for, for upside down bucket for Bielsa to sit. Or was it more drinks? Was it a bucket? Or was it wasn't a, it the, the no? Do you remember the time he he sat on the cooler box? Yes, but there was a cup of coffee on it and yes. he burnt his his <laughs> nether regions. <laughs> so that, I think that's what the image portrayed. There was a cooler box with a coffee on it. I think so. Yeah, he he is there until uh, a deal through to the twenty twenty six World Cup. Um, so how joyous! And uh, presumably Uruguay become everyone's uh, second team. Darwin Nunes and Marcelo Bielsa put together. I think it's just one of those things that football we deserve. We 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 deserve nice things occasionally. And a uh, Bielsa coach, Darwin Nunes, is is a, will be a sight to see. I hope uh, the harbinger of chaos. And, and and you know yeah I I think I think this will be cool I think this will be fun I look forward to staying up late to watch their games. Onto the nonsense questions. Uh, Jilly says, "How does Barry like his toast? Triangles, small triangles, squares, rectangle, halves, or just full pieces? The possibilities are endless." Halves. Two rectangles or two triangles? Oh uh, no, just cut across, not diagonally. Uh, some some spread and and. Marmalade or apricot jam, generally. Marvellous. Uh, Mike says, I read the other day that in parts of Australia they call slides at uh, the fun slope at play parks. Slippery dips. Is this legitimate? <laughs> Haven't thrown Ian down a slippery dip yet. I've not heard this phrase. I haven't heard this phrase. Uh, but I, I will invent... Slippery dip, Mike. <laughs> I will ask Mrs. Rushton if I should call slides slippery dips from now on. Uh, he does. Him and I take the slide together at the swimming pool. But as yet a bit early, occasionally he accidentally goes down slides when you're not watching at soft play, sort of head first, and then is sad about the whole affair. But as yet to make his debut alone on a slide, but on a slippery dip, I will uh, I'll keep you posted. Um, feels like a good place to end, doesn't it? That'll do for today. Uh, thank you, Nikki. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Lars. Uh, thank you, Max. And happy Norway Day, everyone. Oh, yes. How are you celebrating? Um, not much because I'm in London. So, but uh, you know, maybe having some nicer food than usual that seems oh, on how, brand how, for me. How should I mean? How should we all celebrate? There should be parades. Norway. I mean, back in Norway, there are big parades. I think there's a tiny parade somewhere in London, but I'm I'm busy, so I'm not going to go. Right. But um, okay. no, ha- happy Norway Day. Happy Norway Day. Could you say it in Norwegian for us? Hurrah for the May. That's what we say, isn't it? Hooray for the seventieth of May. Hurrah May. Hurrah for May. And to you, Barry. Happy Norway Day. Thank you. Many happy returns. For Weekly produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. <laughs>